Hello, Rap Chat listeners. We have a, a lovely interview for you today with the director of the beautiful film, The Quiet Girl. But first, myself and Paul just wanted to um, pay a tribute to two people from the film industry that we've both known who have very sadly passed today, this week. Um, and yeah, they were, they've both been on our minds and we just wanted to take a moment to kind of pay a little tribute to them. Yeah, um, just from my own perspective, it's been, um, you know, it's it's been quite a sad week. Um, we lost uh, Donald Courtney and Michelle Ford, both of which I would have had um, dealings with and relationships with through my time in drama school and subsequently. Um, I mean, Donny was an actor and a director, a teacher and a mentor for many people in Kerry and also with his work with the Gaiety School of Acting and was a, was a really incredible person. He was always kind of empath- empathetically switched on um, and always uh, he was always present to whoever he kind of engaged with. He was a really, really lovely man. Um, he was kind of the ultimate team player you know, on any project he was ever working on. Um, he's worked in TV. He worked in TV and film and theatre. He was a director in his own right, a writer. And um, most recently, and in, t- in terms of his legacy, he set up the um, the West End House Art School in Kerry with uh, his colleague and friend Michael Fassbender. Um, and I'm sure his work and legacy will live on through his fantastic um, reputation and decency as an actor. Um, as my gran always used to say, show me your friends and I'll tell you what you are. So I'm sure that's uh, omnipresent in his close circle. Um, so just wanted to say rest in peace and thanks very much for your input in um, in, in my career and in my life. Um, yeah, and uh, this week, this Monday, um, Michelle Ford, who was a producer, writer, she had worked in animation. She'd also been an actress, uh um, an amazing person. I I was got the opportunity to work with her on scripts uh, around 2015-2016. Mm-hmm. People might remember Film Base when they were doing script competitions around that time. There was a big push to get people networking and sharing scripts and that's actually how I met her and her script stood out and her writing style stood out uh, so much and we ended up um, collaborating on a bunch of projects and in that time she also would have gotten her cancer diagnosis and was dealing with that in an incredible and inspirational way and one of the ways she did that was writing a script about her experience and it was very funny and very poignant <laughs> and um, yeah yeah uh, so yeah, so she is very much in my thoughts today, and myself and Paul didn't realize actually that we we both knew her. Um, Paul going back a bit further. Yeah, um, Michelle was just a, like a, a firecracker in the in the, po- the most po- positive sense of the word. Um, she was dynamic, single minded, and really like sincere. Um, I, I really admired her. Um, Especially when she had this, the good sense and the, you know to be her own person and know her own mind, at a, in you know at a time when a lot of people in her early twenties didn't, um, and she just had a huge capacity for empathy, um, and it was a shock, frankly, to hear it. Even though I knew she had been sick over the years and 
Um, she was always very kind to me, so, um, so, you know, it's it's a terrible loss. It's a terrible loss because she was a multifaceted, creative person with a multitude of talents that we won't see anymore. So, yeah, um, rest in peace. It's like a film about like tenderness, you know. And I, I kind of loved like the challenge of that. It's like, well, how do you, how do you make a whole film that sort of deals with that and still holds an audience, you know? Mm. I mean, you know, it's about other things as well. Obviously, I mean, it's it's about love, you know. But it, the expression of that in in the everyday mundane sense of it is like this form of tenderness that she experiences. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Very welcome to episode 170 of FNI Rap Chat. Today's guest is a director named Colm Barade. He directed the stunning, beautiful, pensive, thought-provoking, gorgeous film, uh, The Quiet Girl, also known as Colleen Kuhn in its own Irish. Um this film has kind of taken on a life of its own in the last few months. I got to see it um, maybe about two or three months ago around the time. It had just won the Grand Prix at Berlin Alley and I just loved it. It's um, it's a really special film. The performances, the story, it's, uh, it's just got this real beating heart um, and it's it's not like any, any other Irish film I've seen. Um, it's just a, a really stunning piece of work. So it was brilliant to talk to Colm about how it came into existence, his background in docs and how that informed his filmmaking style. And we also had uh, Mia Malarkey on board, uh, who was another big fan of the film. So <laughs> it's a lovely chat and very, very... Um, informative so let's go to Colm very welcome to the studio thanks for joining us thanks for having me um tell us about the last few months has it been crazy yeah since what was it early February we we had our world premiere um at the Berlin Film Festival uh so yeah that was kind of the beginning of the snowball that Colin Kuhn kind of became. Um, so, yeah, like, we obviously... We went over to Berlin for that, and even though, like, it was a slightly different Berlin Alley and that COVID was pretty bad at the time, so it was, like, half-capacity cinemas and all that, um, and masks, masks, obviously, and all that kind of stuff, but um, it was still great, like, because the, uh, the the cinema was, like, a 1,000 seaters. So you still had 500 people watching your film and responding to it, and... Um, and just the festival itself, like how they treat filmmakers is just lovely and just the respect that they show to the films and everything is really, really special. So yeah, we went over, had a great time. Um, although our poor Catherine Clinch, she was the, the lead actor in the film, um, she found out on the morning of the world premiere that she had COVID. Oh no. So Aww. she missed the 
the little girl. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. Aww. She missed the the world premiere, um, and her mom and dad and her sister were there as well. And then, so she missed that, and she had to stay in Berlin for like a week afterwards, oh, just no. in a hotel room, <laughs> slowly kind of losing her sanity. But um, <laughs> so that was that was tough on on poor Catherine. Um, and like we had we had come home, and like she was still over there, and then we found out like a few days later that we had won the the grand jury or sorry the grand prix um of our category so like okay. for best feature film ah you weren't there for it well we actually flew back out oh fair play <laughs> <laughs> so um we were kind of like okay we don't want to miss mm. our first time winning a big award for yeah. the film so um yeah uh yeah we went back out so amazing and in the screening could you feel i guess it's because it's not like it's not like there's loads of laughs to gauge off an audience but could you feel something in the audience yeah yeah definitely um it's weird like even you know you watch it with an irish audience and you do get quite a few laughs at like different things mm. um and i wasn't expecting that to happen with a german audience and and yet yeah there was still <laughs> the little irishism yeah like you know when the nosy neighbor is mm. inquiring about like is is eileen baking all the time yeah and, like, she's great but she's like oh does she use butter or margarine yeah you know, I was didn't think the Germans would uh, be <laughs> into that. Yeah, yeah, but um, so all that stuff surprising me. That's the weird thing. Like everywhere we've shown it, it's kind of been the same reaction. Right. You get a little bit more, like obviously in Ireland, you get a bit more kind of. There's a bit more of a sort of nostalgia trip going on with some of this sort of incidental stuff. You know, like Bunny Car on the on the TV. Mm. And yeah. The Kimberly Biscuit. You know. Yeah. yeah. Seems to mean a lot to people here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big time. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so then since Berlin, after that, then we we played the we opened the Dublin Film Festival, and you know that was amazing, and that was lovely then for Catherine because that was like her mm-hmm. first time, you know, presenting the film in a way that she's in, you know, and experiencing all of that. So yeah, that was that was really special, you know, showing it to a home audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, we might go back a little bit and uh, tell us about your journey into filmmaking. Okay, how far back do we go? Um, as far as you like. <laughs> what was the first movie that made you want to make films? Hmm, I'm not sure I have an answer to that specifically. Um, I do know that I, I, I was kind of my love of films sort of was certainly cultivated by my dad. It was weird. Like my dad hated television when we were growing up, and. Um, like I, I was born in 1981, and then when I was around eight, uh, seven or eight, our TV broke, and my dad was delighted, you know, because me <laughs> and my brother used to fight all the time about, I, I always wanted to watch MacGyver, and he wanted to watch wrestling, and, like, we would end up <laughs> wrestling ourselves <laughs> about it. Um, so when the TV broke, like, my mom and dad were kind of delighted, especially my dad, because he thought television was, was silly or whatever. So then, like, the, we had, like, a year and a half of, like... um. I think there's like uh, there's a scene in The Simpsons, isn't there, where they stop watching TV and all the kids start running out in nature and <laughs> reading books outside and all. And it was a bit like that. Like Dad talks about us, you know, becoming lost in in books and all this kind of stuff. But then in 1990, obviously Ireland got into the World Cup, and um, uh, you know you had to have a television. Like it was sort of crazy that you would not. So Dad had to sort of buy a TV, and but he bought like a proper, you know set up and like so we got a vcr player for the first time and then that was like that was sort of my gateway then into the world of film 
you know. Um, and dad, because he was like, didn't really want us watching TV, he took more of an interest then in kind of curating what we would be watching. So like he started buying VHSs of, you know, and he'd start with all older films and silent movie films and musicals and stuff. And uh, the first VHS he ever bought was Flying Down to Rio, which is like a Fred, mm-hmm. Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers thing from the late 30s, I think. Um, but yeah, like Charlie Chaplin was a huge thing in our house, like Modern Times. We just loved that as as, as young kind of preteens. Um, and then, yeah, it just sort of took, took off from there, like, you know, film noir and dad would then start mentioning these directors, you know, that all sounded really mysterious to me and like Kurosawa and these kind of people. And you're just always sort of dropping these sort of breadcrumbs and, so then I just sort of, it just grew from there and here's my interest in film. And then when I was like a teenager, um, I would try and make short films. With like, I was always trying to get my dad to buy a camcorder just so he could try to do something, but he never did. But um, my cousin, my aunt like had, had a camcorder down in me. Then we, my, me and my cousin went off and we made like a film one summer and like I'm in it. <laughs> it's really <laughs> embarrassing to look at now, but um, does it still exist? Do you still have it? I think he, he might have like a VHS copy of it or something <laughs> somewhere. Um, but yeah, so and we we no facility to edit it either. We didn't know what editing was, so we like we just shot it in sequence. We looked like <laughs> in camera. Um, and then like I'm a really good friend of mine, uh, Dermot Goggins, who's now a very well established drama director. He just directed Ken. Uh, we went to the same school um, and I actually I met him through because I, I came into school one day he wasn't in the same class as me we were in the same year but I came into school one day because my uncle had given me like this old Sony camcorder like a I think it was like a high 8 or something but it was one that was like chunky like you could put it on your shoulder but I, I could never get it to work but there was a teacher who was like oh bring it in and I'll see if I can fix it for you and stuff <laughs> so I brought it in and and Dermot's eyes just kind of lit up when he saw this and then we kind of became firm friends after that and we used to make short films together. Yeah. Um, uh, Dermot's been on the podcast. Oh, there's, there's one you can listen to. That was very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, then it was similar to Dermot then. I just went to, um, I didn't go to Dunleary. Dermot went to Dunleary. I went to um, DIT, Angel Street. I did film and broadcasting there for four years. Yeah, so that was kind of my yeah formal education in terms mm. of. And were you, did you were you did you find your love of directing then? Did you get to direct, or were you doing other things, editing that kind of thing? Um, yeah, you got to do a mix of stuff. I certainly was interested in directing, um, and I was lucky enough to to get to how many did I do? Two, two or three of the shorts. Um, because yeah, there was sort of a competitive aspect. Like everyone had to write their scripts, and you'd be kind of hoping to be selected like if yours got selected you got to choose whether you wanted to direct it um so yeah but you still got a very good sort of grounding i think in 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 a, a lot of the disciplines you know certain like we would have been started off editing on Steambeck, you know so that was a lovely thing to experience even though never you know after that it was all digital non-linear editing uh once we left college but it was lovely to have that experience of just having your hands on film and like the, the sound of it going through the machine and, and splicing and all that kind of stuff, you know, and that sort of discipline that's required with that form of editing that you have to, um, 
you have to kind of give it quite a bit of thought, you know, because yeah. it's so laborious, you know, yeah. the, the actual yeah. implementation of an idea. Has that stayed with you, that lesson? Like, or now that it's digital, you can just jump in and be a bit more experimental or would you really contemplate? Um, I'd like to think that I would, I would have fairly, uh, well, in terms of, it kind of ties back to like how you approach the shoot, you know, like you're editing before you start shooting in a way like, um, so I'd like to think that I'd have a fairly definite idea of what I'm trying to achieve, but then I'm certainly open to the notion that I will fail in that regard and that the editor has to kind of come to your rescue or, or the editing process where you might just have another idea or, you know, there is that kind of lovely alchemy that occurs in the room with an editor where you suddenly, um, find new ways of looking at at something that you thought you you understood or or you thought you you saw the the kind of pathway for it um so yeah i'm certainly certainly a fan of non-linear mm-hmm. <laughs> digital yeah yeah and then after college what kind of what kicked off your career or what did you jump into um the first thing i would have done was um Again, with Dermot, we were both like really kind of, we kind of didn't want to get ordinary kind of jobs. We were just like, no, let's try and get like these films made, you know, like shorts and stuff. So um, it was very much about that for a few years. And, and I, I managed to get, um, there was a great scheme that Filmbase used to run with TG Cahar. It was called Losser. So it was like short films in Irish. Mm. Um, and I managed to get one of those in 2015. Um, so that was kind of like my first thing that I did after college and, um, yeah, that was like an amazing experience and, you know, kind of was quite successful at festivals and stuff, but crucially it sort of established a relationship between myself and, and TG Cahar. So I got to know like the commissioning editors and so then suddenly I was being kind of recommended for other documentary work like on TG Cahar. That was so then I'm so I'm suddenly in a position where I'm being paid. I kind of have a job now, you know, and I'm I'm making docs and um and all of that. But it was always a case of trying to figure out, well, how do I like my first love was was fiction filmmaking and working with actors and and like how do I progress in that regard, you know? So it's sort of like a potted history from that point on of just working in tel- television uh you know, doing Strategic Car, RTE, TV3, as it was, um, and then kind of doing short films along the way. Mm. But the interesting thing is they were all Irish language. And um, and then there was a great scheme in 2010 called Uther, uh, which is the Irish word for author. Um, again, it was a, a TG Car scheme similar to the Moonstone scheme that used to be around like at the end of the 90s, I think, um, whereby, you know, certain writers and directors would be selected to participate. And then you had like a mentor. So I, I went in as a director um, in Uder in, U- Uder in 2010. So I had uh, Declan Rex was, was my mentor. Hmm. And then I had a script, a great script by Maeve Johnston. Um, which was an adaptation of a Porrick O'Connor short story called Antal. So that was that was this short film that I was going to get to make. But before you go and make the film, I think the budget was like like a hundred grand or something to make this short. Okay. But before you get before you go and make the film, you have this 
week of workshops um, with your mentor. So like Declan Rex was there watching me direct, you know, scenes from this script that I was going to eventually make. So you had like a full crew and it was all done then in the Ross Maroon sets, you know. Amazing scheme. Yeah, it was incredible. It was really brilliant. And 100k for a short as well. Yeah, which is, yeah. You know, they were kind of longer. They were like 20, they were... They were trying to get them like TV half hours. So, mm. but I think a lot of them came in around 21, 22 minutes. But just that experience, it was so intense. Like, you'd, you'd have a day where you would, um, you'd have to shoot a scene in the morning with a full crew. Then you get kind of notes from the director who was watching you direct. Then you'd have to go into the edit and you had like three hours to edit your scene. And then you had to present it to all of the, the mentors. So it was like Dervla Walsh and like Declan Rex and I think Tom Collins at the time. So they'd all watch your scene and you'd be like really nervous. Yeah, and, amazing. Um, so that went on. Like you did like two or three days of that and and then just other kind of classes with like um, just different people that would have come in, you know. So that was like invaluable and brilliant sort of example of, of T.G. Carr's uh, foresight in terms of trying to develop a talent pool mm, yeah because then they did it again in 2012 and I was picked for that again and that time then I had I had Paddy Brannock as my mentor and you know it's just amazing like to have yeah. you're gonna have these people for a whole week to yourself mm, where you yeah. can just ask them anything and yeah yeah um so they were really precious and valuable kind of experiences um in terms of developing i think as a as a director of of fiction um and then after that yeah i kind of yeah i met my i met my my now wife who's a producer uh and she's very her background she produced on colin kuhn actually but her background was sort of journalism and then we met working on a doc series and and uh we just had certain passion projects that we wanted to get off the ground in terms of documentary. So we kind of, I was kind of quite focused on docs for a while. And then just a lot of offers were coming in for different doc things that I kind of couldn't turn down. Like we did, uh, we had an amazing year in Mountjoy prison where we, myself and Cleona, um, you know, we made a four part series for TV three called the joy. And that was an extraordinary experience. We were there for 11 months so it's just me with camera and Cleo with a mic and we just, we just had like complete access to wow. the entire mm. place. Yeah. So that was really extraordinary. Mm. Um, and I'm just trying to think then in terms of like the drama, uh, the next thing then would have been, uh, I made a feature docudrama called Murder Wam Trasna or the Mam, oh, yeah. Mam Trasna Murder. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. So that was another amazing job you know um produced by Kieran O'Cuffey um of Rusk over in uh, over in the west and just an extraordinary story and just a real privilege to actually tell us you know mm. but it was lovely um it was again just a brilliant sort of training ground for making that leap I think to mm. a full-length feature because Murder One Trasna has like an hour of scripted drama within it like there's almost like a feature in yeah. there and certainly in terms of scale and everything, because we had these big courtroom scenes and lots of extras. And mm. so it was quite pressurized, like the experience of, you know, dealing yeah. in, with those sort of setups. But I like I relished it, like I loved it. It was brilliant. 
Um, but it was just, a, again, just another great way of sort of cutting your teeth and preparing mm. yourself for for the kind of, you know. Keep it, because there's a different muscle, the drama thing that you need to kind of keep flexed, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and yet, at the same time, I still really value all of the documentary experience, yeah. particularly stuff that... Um, I was going to say particularly stuff that I would have shot myself because, like, you know, you're you're literally creating all of the building blocks that mm. become the, the piece. But even working with other, like, great camera camera people, like, um, like, when I was making, when I'm making docs, like, I'm really concerned about, like, this notion of capturing the essence of a place. Mm. And, like, you do that primarily, in my experience, through, like, what are often, like, the sort of, the boring part in for, for some people but like gvs to mm. me are like how you establish tone in a doc mm. you know yeah or just like the feel of a documentary yeah so i used to love we'd spend some i spent a lot of time thinking about yeah gvs and like how do we how do we capture this place or this feeling that we're trying to bring into this place with this character or whatever it was um and i actually think a lot of that stands to you then when you come to depending on what type of fiction filmmaking you're interested in, but it, I think it's certainly, I feel like it's present in Uncalling Kuhn even because the place is such an important part of yeah. the film. Yeah. Um, and again, that's a muscle that's sort of, uh, was built up through documentary work um, as much as anything else. But yeah, you are right though, like in terms of drama, like you have to, you know, you have to, you have to keep working with actors as much as you can, which is mm -hmm. difficult because it takes so long to get it things off the ground. Yeah. So, yeah. Years so then can go by so easily. Like, yeah, yeah. And you have to make a living and, you know, there's an urgency to documentaries and factual and there's, you know, there's always work kind of thing. Yeah. We think we've all mm -hmm. <laughs> had that, you know, yeah. where you want, you know, uh, um, and you could be writing scripts and the scripts can be nearly getting produced, but, not getting there kind of thing did you were you always writing along the way yeah pretty much yeah um like i was at one point um before cine car came along which is the scheme that this film was made under uh like tg car were still at that point actively kind of funding the development of drama series and stuff like that so we had um i had a drama series sort of in development with them so we had gotten selected and uh but then <laughs> there was there was a, a change of changing of the guard in in tg car oh, and yeah. alan esselmont came in as the new head of tg car and he made the decision to stop uh drama and to focus exclusively on features right so cine car was kind of his brainchild okay but anyway that kind of meant our drama series kind of yeah. went yeah. But they, they, they kind of wanted us to adapt it into like a feature, okay. which we did. And we got we got shortlisted for one of the rounds of Cine Car. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if people are aware of what Cine Car is, but it's a it's a scheme that's there to to develop or to produce, develop and produce Irish language feature films. And um, so like they put out a, a call every like year or thereabouts. And they'll shortlist five, five projects, and each project gets twenty five grand to develop, to like first draft, second draft kind of mm -hmm. stage, and then uh, you, so then you deliver your draft at the end of that process, 
and uh, they choose two out of the five to go into pr full production. So like that time with, with that particular project, we we apparently came third. <laughs> it's not right. really yeah, yeah. heartbreaking <laughs> considering the journey of where, you know, it had been going on for quite a while, you know, yeah, where yeah. it first started off as a TV idea. But um, so, yeah, then I was like even more determined that I was like, I need to get one of these cine cars because like, I've just, I don't know, I just felt like I had put in so much work over the years in terms of Irish language drama and it just felt like uh, a sort of natural step or something, you know, for me. And then, um, then, yeah, then I was, I don't know, maybe I was slightly disheartened by the fact that like this original material that I had tried to get over the line hadn't made it. And then I sort of became intrigued by the notion of adapting something and uh yeah that's how then i i stumbled upon this here which is claire keegan's book um foster uh and i read that in like 2018 yeah did you just stumble across it and it, or did somebody give it to you i bought it okay yeah but <laughs> I, I stumbled across it in the sense that I, I read an article in the irish times um which was uh it was like the 10 best mm. works of literature written by women uh in ireland in the 21st century i was just kind of looking through the list seeing if i had read many of them and um i just saw foster and i realized i had obviously heard of it like it was foster was written or released in 2010 to great acclaim but i'd never gotten around to, to reading it and for whatever reason i just sort of honed in on that and mm. and um did you reach out to her then or what was the process yeah yeah um well, yeah, after I read it, like, I just kind of fell in love with it. Like, it's, I've yet to meet someone who's read it who doesn't, like, adore it, you know. Um, So then, yeah, after that, I was like, I'd never, never acquired the rights to anything before. So it was, okay, I think I rang, like, Paddy Hayes, who's a producer uh, who produced another cine car called Fusca which is itself an adaptation of a Donald Ryan mm. novel, The Thing About December. So I knew Paddy had some experience. So I was like, Paddy, how do you, how do you get like an author to uh, give you the rights? And anyway, so it's all kind of boring legal. Like you just get in touch with their literary agent and mm -hmm. you have to, I had to write like a pitch document to, that they would then present to Claire. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, it was relatively straightforward forward you know i mean when there's all the kind of legal back and forth on had there know. been other offers on her novel were you the first or well the rights were available mm -hmm. at the time when i asked for them I, I did find out subsequently someone told me subsequently that they had tried to get the rights at some point i don't know what happened there right and i do know that after we had secured the rights that um an actor I can't think of her name now. You might. She was in. Uh, oh, she's in the Truman Show. Do you know the sort of. Not Laura, not Laura Linney. Um, Natasha something. She she has brown hair. In the I Truman. can see her. Yeah, and she was in. She was in that Robert De Niro film uh, that John Frankenheimer made. I think the Ronin. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I can't even. I can't think of her name. But anyway, <laughs> she's kind of like someone you would sort of know. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But apparently, she was. She was asking, she was trying to get the rights, uh, uh -huh. presumably to try and play the part of yeah. Edna, as she's called in, in the original, or Eileen in, in, in our film. Yeah. 
So yeah, I was delighted. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was delighted yeah. that we had them at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let's take a little news break um, and a little reminder first that this film is out in cinemas at the moment. Definitely worth going to see in the cinema at all. Just Google The Quiet Girl or on Colleen Kuhn and you will find a list of venues. It's definitely, definitely one to see in the cinema, I'm sure. But if you can't, it will be on general release soon as well. I think it's a film that people will be talking about for years. It's uh, it's just one of those rare things. Nobody expected it, but it's just really captured people's imagination. Um. So on the subject of pitching, um, there is the Galway Film Flat pitching deadline is approaching the 27th of May. I myself, I have pitched in it three times. Uh, <laughs> never won, but uh, have learned a lot from every time. I would thoroughly recommend people entering it. All you need is a half-page treatment um, for the idea, and then up in about nine or ten contestants qualify and you have to pitch your 90 second elevator pitch which is very difficult to distill a feature film idea into 90 seconds but it's an excellent exercise uh, that I would recommend um, also keep your ears peeled or your eyes peeled for F&I news uh, coming there is going to be the first in-person <laughs> meetup and live event for members of FNI. So you can go to buy me a coffee forward slash FNI to uh, sign up for membership and tickets will be free for members. <coughs> uh, so we encourage you to do that. Um, so let's get back to the conversation with Colm and Mia. Yeah, yeah. And it suited, it's, uh, like it's written in English, but it suited being... The, the Irish language, the translation, yeah, because yeah. it's the culture, it's the time and the people, so yeah, and that's like a huge, you know, that's a big concern of mine. Like as an Irish speaker, you want to present something that feels authentic, you mm. know, in terms of the language, and um, yeah. So like as I was reading it, you know, knowing that I was trying to find something for Cine Cahar, like an Irish language idea, I was like, yeah, you can absolutely, just like move the action to a Gwaltoth area mm. and even then like have but still have it have it begin in like an English speaking world but that there is still Irish within the family yeah. um, so all of those things just really appeal to me like that idea because like that's how I, I grew up in a bilingual house and, mm. and is did, did you say you're born in 81 yeah and the book and the film is set in 81. Yeah. Is that an accident or? That's, yeah, pure. So the book, that, so the book is set in that time as well, is it? Yeah, the book is in 81, yeah. Because um, I actually, I didn't notice the time watching the film. I was only, when I was reading yesterday, that some something said
the hunger strikes, I think, something like that. Or, well, there might be some earlier mention actually of like hmm. of butter mountains, you know, and <laughs> by the sea. If you're if you're up on your sort of European politics, and, mm. right? Yeah. Um, you would remember, yeah, that or you would sort of twig it. But for me, the thing that really landed it for me was the there's a mention of the hunger strikers, and you're like, okay, eighty one. I know mm. exactly where I am now. Yeah. But it does. It has that sort of timeless quality. So yeah, we were. Like we did have some men, we did have a mention of the hunger strikes in, like we shot stuff, right? Where Sean talks about it at the kitchen table and stuff. Yeah, um, and we also had a scene where Caught is like in this other neighbor's house, and she's in, she's left alone in in the TV room, and there's like a news report about the strikers and all this kind of stuff. But then we lost that scene, like actually for other reasons. But then we kind of realized, Do you know, there's something nice about being slightly less pointed about mm. like here we are in 1981 you know yeah. and just keeping it a bit more sort of uh just vague. keeping it more vague yeah and yeah. which in a, in a weird way is more representative then of like this what the film's trying to do in terms mm. of present mm. this young person's point of view yeah and you know at that age you're not you really don't have context yeah yeah. Exactly, yeah so it's trying to i think it kind of weirdly works in the film's favor to yeah. be less specific and on that, it's one of, for me, it was one of the strengths of the film is that sense of the little girl's perspective that you're so immersed inside her worldview and the camera does a lot to kind of capture that and the sound design, it's very immersive in Koch's world. So I'd love to hear about your, just your design and your kind of vision for it once you knew that this was yours and you are going to make it. Yeah. Um, I guess like in a, in a way that was one of the things when I read Foster that jumped out at me as well is that like you read it and it's it's in the first person and it's in the present tense as well um so it's immediately kind of immersive and uh to me like i i love i'm kind of obsessed with point of view in film and i, I really i have a, i do love like first person narratives like that are very strong kind of uh position in terms of the aesthetic and what it's trying to represent. So that all that stuff immediately was really appealing as well when I read it. Whose perspective is it written from? From Coates. 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 Yeah, okay. so it's all like, she's, it's all like, I, I'm doing this now. You know, it's like, okay. it's all like present yeah, tense. It's yeah. all I, I, I. Um, so yeah, it just felt like that then in one way makes your job easier as a director because you know, okay, well, like the film has, has to establish a sort of set of guidelines or rules for itself. Um, and I knew that then as I was writing the script even like I was you know you'd be writing say the the travelling sequence where she goes from her her family home to the Kinsler's and like if you read the the script the, the way it's described you, you know that the, the camera is not leaving her orbit like it's all like details like out windows and mm. um, so then like yeah you know then okay well I don't need like a big wide shot of this car kind of driving through the countryside or I don't, I don't need like a drone shot or, you know, I don't need any of this stuff, which like A is great from a producing logistical point of view. Like there's a clarity and a sort of economy involved. Mm. But more importantly, it's, it's actually just, you're just making a better film because you're, it's more truthful in terms of what you're trying to represent, you know? Mm. Um, and then that feeds into everything then, you know, it's um, even like the aspect ratio that we chose, which is one three seven to mm. one academy ratio. That again just felt like the sort of correct 
shape, not only in terms of like representing her kind of point of view or the or the fact that her horizons haven't really expanded yet, um, but also just felt like a, a lovely way of holding her character. Like he, he, we were shooting like camera tests with her, and just felt like this beautiful way of holding her character, holding her in frame, and reinforcing this notion that this film belongs to her, um, and this notion that you know a young person kind of only sees what's in front of them in a in a weird kind of a way, you know, and um, as I said, just that notion that it's not her her horizons haven't expanded, and that mm-hmm. it's it's a more focused kind of way of looking at the world. Yeah. And there's such a, I mean, that whole era was seen and not heard. And there's something about the way you shot it that you're kind of giving voice to a whole type of character, a whole generation, like by actually, you know, holding the frame. You know, I've never seen a film from that kind of perspective before, but that's something that you thought about. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not like the film isn't. Uh, it's not a critique of um, much bigger issues in terms of Irish society mm. at the time and going further back in terms of institutional abuse and all that kind of stuff. But, but it's certainly a film that's that's aware of the backdrop um, and the sort of how we we failed in terms of, you know, that line in the proclamation about, like, all of the children of the nation being cherished equally and, and like, how, how as a society, we, we didn't always live up to that, you know? Um, and also, like, I, I had become a dad, like, two years before I read Foster, so just I had that sort of very uh, kind of immediate uh, understanding of, like, what, of the care that a child needs and and then when you see the opposite of that it feels so much more pronounced you know and you're looking you know whether that in, in Claire's original you know that you you kind of so it's sort of like a compassionate response to this child as well um those details are so moving in the film just like someone brushes your hair and it means the world like there's touch and there's affection and there's you know, attention and it's tiny. It's just brushing the hair, but the shift in her emotional world is, you know, totally transformative. So it is those tiny details of just how you care for a child. That's kind of what is the emotional heart of the the film. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that was also like, it's sort of a, it's kind of, in one way, it's like a film about like tenderness, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of loved like the challenge of that. It's like, well, how do you, how do you make a whole film that sort of, deals with that and still holds an audience you know mm. I mean you know it's about other things as well obviously I mean it's it's about love you know but it, the expression of that in, in the everyday mundane sense of it is like this form of tenderness that she experiences and the tension comes from the fact that she's probably going to lose it and go back to that kind of cold icy life that she had lived yeah yeah so there's tension all the way through because you know this is coming yeah sure and also I hope a little bit of tension maybe in the earlier part of when she gets to the Kinsellas and that you're not quite sure of like she's still figuring out these people mm. and even though Eileen like is very openly warm towards her she's not quite sure of the the sort of 
this new father figure in yes, her life. Yeah. And the, the film does purposely sort of play with that a little, mm. like the scene where she goes to bed. She goes, she's in bed in the first night that she's, she's spending in the Kinsella's and this like figure appears, a shadow appears at the door. Yes, it's quite ominous and it could be him. Yeah, because at that point you don't really know oh, what, mm. kind of, what kind of guy is this? Like mm. he's being real standoffish and, and then who's this coming into the room and then they're like sitting on the bed and mm, yeah. so it's kind of, it's sort of playing with that a little as well, I think. Yeah, because you don't know what direction the story will take. There's a few scenes like that, like towards the end when she goes to the well. Yeah. You're like, oh, oh no. But yeah. then it, it changes direction again. So there's a few of those moments because, it, again, she's vulnerable and she's kind of alone in the world. So she's at the mercy of whoever's there. And you don't know what's... Like the woman, the kind of funny woman asking, does she cook with butter or margarine? you like, what's going to come out of this? You don't know what that woman's agenda is. Yeah. And again, it's this vulnerable girl alone in the world. Yeah. So it's it, it that carries a lot of tension throughout the film. Yeah. Um, and again, that's all based on the sort of point of view thing. You know, it's like, an, and it was like a belief in the notion that if you can place an audience in the shoes of, of a young person, um, that you kind of don't need plot, you know, that it's actually it's more about like just the experiential aspect and, mm. and coming up against these things that to an adult don't mean a huge amount, but like through the eyes of a child are just amplified and magnified um, and kind of mysterious or, you know, whatever it is about the adult world that's, that's kind of difficult to, uh, for her to get her head around. Mm. Um, so yeah, just all those sort of challenges were really appealing from a filmmaking point of view. How is the casting? Because you've an amazing cast. Yeah, casting was, um, you know, for Irish language, it's always more difficult because you have a smaller talent pool to choose from. But then I always knew Carrie Crowley was going to be Eileen. Like she was always kind of in my director's notes and everything. Um, and then for the Sean character, I, I found that more difficult because I wasn't, just that whatever it is about that like particular age group uh, in terms of Irish language actors it there's not a huge it wasn't like a huge amount of like candidates and I was like who are we going to get for this like and then um, I can't remember was it Paddy Hayes again <laughs> it was certainly Andrew Andrew Bennett who plays Sean um, was in a, a TV series that Paddy produced called Epic mm. that okay. Louise Nienitha directed and um, and I, I didn't realise that Andrew Bennett was in this. And then I got sent, like, scenes from it. And uh, I was like, oh, my God, Andrew Bennett has, like, complete command of the language. Like, and, yeah, yeah. like what a fabulous actor. Yeah. And um, and just, you know, perfect age, everything about yeah. him. It's like, okay. Yeah. So then we got Carrie in and Andrew. And then the process of finding court was obviously the most... Mm. Uh, onerous and, and time consuming like we took about seven months so like we started off we didn't have we didn't actually hire a, a casting director kind of naively in hmm. in some senses yeah. but in another way it was really kind of special experience like so it's just myself and Cleona um decided okay well we're Irish speakers and we have the ear for the Irish and we're gonna know whether like this young person's up to it or whatever um it's so difficult because like, you've set yourself an incredible challenge in that you're this was always the plan to immerse in the world of that person and then I have to get an Irish speaker as well. I know, yeah. <laughs> but then in a weird way, the talent pool sort of 
bigger because yeah. you've got all these like young people who, you know, either they grow up in the in the Guelph or they're going to a Guelph school and have like command of the language. Mm. So it's sort of that's like more of an unknown then, and mm. you just kind of have to believe like, well, there has to be someone, yeah, amongst all of these like thousands of kids, you know, yeah. and um, so yeah, like we started off. See the the Irish that's spoken in the film is Munster Irish. It's specifically kind of Waterford mm. uh, on Rhine. Irish. Like in the ring, yeah, yeah. Um, so we kind of had this notion at the beginning that oh, wouldn't wouldn't it be nice to get like a girl who speaks kind of Munster Irish of some description, um, and there'd be less work then in terms of the dialect. Even though like the character isn't from the area, mm-hmm. but the Irish that she's exposed to at home is her mother's Irish, which is she that kind of same, Irish, right? Yeah. So yeah. she should have like a flavor of that. Yeah. So we kind of we had open auditions in on Rhine, and in Cork and Coulee, another Gwelthwood there, and then over in Dingle, and then we had some in Clare as well. So we kind of were covering all the kind of Munster areas, and you know saw hundreds of young people and like some great people, but there was no one that we were like a hundred percent, you know, this person has like the acting chops or the ability to, to inhabit the character and also you know the sort of fortitude or resolve that you would need to actually go through this process you mm-hmm. know because you're this is like she's in every scene in the film bar maybe two there's like two moments where she kind of disappears yeah so like the demands of that like for a young person are huge mm-hmm. you know um and then covid hit so all of our in-person auditions went by the wayside so then we put out a call to all the Guelph schools um for self-tapes so we got all these tapes in and um and I think Catherine Catherine Clinch who played who got the part in the end I think she had actually she was supposed to come to an audition in Dublin like an in-person but then they got cancelled so we kind of had her details and then she sent in a self-tape but um yeah her tape was just amazing mm. really yeah Cleo Cleona saw it first and she just rang me. She's like, "Come, she's like, come on, you need to come home and watch this tape." Really? She's like, "I think we found our caught. Like, this uh, girl is great. great." Feeling, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Mm. And she'd even put a lot of thought into it. Well, it was probably her and her mum, but like they shot the scenes like in the right rooms and right in the house <laughs> and stuff, you know. And mm. really, yeah. And like had little kind of, not overdone, but like had little props and things, and just you know. Yeah. But it was more just her ability to. You know, like her character is is so guarded and has learned to like push all of her emotions inside and mm. and it was her ability to sort of withhold all mm. of that. Uh that was really impressive. And still captivate you. Yeah. Which is mm. difficult. But, that, but in a way that's like well, it's difficult, but that's the sort of essence to me of screen acting. Mm. You know, it's actually about it's about like not emoting yeah, in a way yeah. Yeah. and it's about trusting or, or understanding that the character or sorry the camera can still given the context of the scene mm. and everything that the camera is like this x-ray machine that will that will understand or that will pick up uh, whatever tiny thing you give it mm-hmm. um, it's like there's a good book by um, Mike Figgis the director who made Leaving Las Vegas and all those films um, 
he wrote a book called I think it's called like On Digital Filmmaking or something very like kind of boring title but um, <laughs> yeah. it's a really tiny book but he spoke about uh, he would have directed some episodes of, of The Sopranos and um, he, he spoke about precisely that thing of like great screen acting is actually what's happening when the character isn't even speaking like he was saying watching James Gandolfini in Sopranos, like it was actually, it was actually, it was watching him think mm. or feel, yeah, was the most captivating, and to him was like the essence of like that screen acting, like that's what it is, yeah, and that's what differentiates it from, from the stage, you know, mm. where that projection isn't happening. It's actually you're, most of the time you're you're trying to keep the emotion in because that's, yeah, that's how we are in real life, you know. That's, mm-hmm. you know, we. We start off as children and we emote the whole time mm. and we throw stuff out there. But then we learn as time goes on to like shut down these emotional responses to things. Mm. And, and then then we get adept at like reading people and like what it is that like, how are you really feeling right now or you or and we kind of have this system of where we think we can read people to a certain degree. And that's that's what you're doing as an audience watching mm. characters. Yeah. Um. But Coet's character, she's learned to to shut down because she hasn't had an outlet for it, you know. Um, and then just to see a young person then inhabit that character in that way was extraordinary, you know. And like I I remember just you were just leaning into her audition tape because you're just so captivated by mm. her and what she's not showing you. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, but I think that that's what makes her performance so special in the film you know yeah um yeah and it's, i think you're looking for a lot of things there and she has to be just patient and able to deal with long days and all that stuff yeah or are we looking at a, a future star i don't know i'm not sure i mean i'm not sure if she wants, she wants to be it, you yeah, know that kind yeah. of thing um she's you know she's 12 now like yeah you know, when I was 12, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. what I wanted for dinner. I, yeah, yeah. How are you supposed to know, you know? Um, I would love to see her get some other opportunities and I'd be fascinated to see yeah. what she would do. Um, but yeah, who knows? I'm not sure. She's like, she kind of, I think she could do anything. She's like one of these yeah. hyper-intelligent, yeah. Uh, extraordinarily astute person, you know? Um like never really never felt like oh there's like a child on set it's like yeah. this is like yeah. small amazing mm. adult who's yeah, understands yeah. this stuff you know as well yeah. as anyone yeah um but yeah i mean it was the challenge was in terms of like the logistical challenge of of that working with someone at that age you know you're obviously beholden to the your labor laws you know so you've only got so your shooting day is 10 hours um but you can only she can only be on set for seven and a half. Mm. So like she arrives and so that's her arriving and then leaving to go home. Mm. And then within that, <clears throat> she has to, she has to have a break for 15 minutes every hour. Mm. Um, so right, like okay. it's just yeah. a huge amount of, mm. yeah. yeah. So you're figuring out, you're trying to figure out, okay, hold on. She's in every scene. And yet every day we shoot, we've got two and a half hours that we need to fill with material that doesn't include her. So it's like, so your first ID had a lot of work, yeah, <laughs> a lot of planning, yeah, big time, and then so you, then you're always trying to, 
well, there's two things. We needed a double. So say any shot that was just like her hand mm. or her foot mm. or whatever, that was always a double or nearly always. Mm. Um, and then certain wide shots, you would have yeah. a double as well. Mm. Yeah. But then the other thing was you would try and uh, schedule bigger scenes that she's in, well, she's in all the scenes, but bigger scenes that would require kind of additional coverage that didn't include her. You would always try and do those that would straddle like the end of the day. Mm. So you'd be shooting all of her coverage. Let's say she finished at like half five or whatever. You might start at four and then you would, you would get all her coverage and then you've got like another two and a half hours to like shoot out the rest of the scene, like all mm. the other characters or whatever. So you have to really break things up. You can't be sequential at all in how you map each day. Yeah. Um, to a degree, yeah. I mean, we did try, by and large, we tried to keep it chronological mm. for the benefit of, of mainly of, of, uh, the actress. of Catherine. And, yeah. Um, but then, yeah, within certain days, then you would have to like shift things slightly to accommodate that, you know? Um, but then like the really tricky thing and I'm still, I've, I, I keep forgetting this. I have to keep reminding myself that this happened. So say like the scene where caught is like the, the letter comes and, uh, Carrie is like reading out this letter and, um, so yeah, that was one of those scenes that we would have shot at the end of the day and then Catherine's gone. And then Carrie has to do her coverage for this, like, really, like, delicate, sort mm. of touching scene. Mm. And she's nothing. She's nothing to act to. Yeah. Now, we had a double that we would offer to her, you know, yeah. someone else. <clears throat> but then Carrie didn't, she actually didn't, she didn't want that because, like, the double wasn't Catherine, you know. It was, yeah. like, totally different energy yeah. offer and everything. Yeah. So, like, Carrie was oftentimes acting to, like, a C-stand <laughs> with <laughs> a bit of gaffer tape for the eye line. <laughs> So like that, ama- like, I'm still amazed at like that that letter scene. Like that's her talking to a luminous piece of <laughs> yellow gaffer tape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it was like it was like, it was a challenge for us logistically, and then challenge for the actors around Catherine for those kind of things. You yeah. know. Mm. So I'm sort of in awe at the fact that they were able to do that. Mm. Um. And you worked with John Murphy in the edit. Did you? I'm always curious about, you know, how much time you need for a film like this. I mean, the, the, like, yeah, in terms of getting the pace right. How long does it take? Yeah, how long did it take? Remember. <laughs> I think we had like 16 weeks in the budget. But that would have been like John started cutting when we were filming. He was assembling as we were filming. Okay. And we filmed for five weeks, five weeks, yeah, 25 days. Um, was he near set? Was that part of it? Were you able to, no? No, John okay. was in, John was in Galway. Okay, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's based over there. Yeah. <coughs> and we shot in County Meath, um, all of it, bar the beach scene, which is in Rush, North County Dublin. Whereabouts so, in Meath? Um, we were kind of near... Summer Hill, kind okay. of. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm from Navan. So All right. I'm curious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's beautiful. It just the location was beautiful. Uh, yeah, amazing. Like Cleona is from County Meath, so she kind of. Ah, okay. 
she sort of found the main house, like the Kinsella house, right. which was uh, like uh, the film just wouldn't be like what it is only for that location. Yeah, because okay. it gave us so much. Right. Inside and outside. Yeah. For a long time, like we were resigning ourselves to the notion that okay, well, the kitchen's going to be in some house here, and then yeah, yeah. the bedrooms are going to be like way off somewhere else, yeah. and mm. but we got like. We got the amazing driveway with the trees. Yeah, yeah. The house itself. You didn't have to do much to it in terms of the dressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very little, yeah. Because yeah. it hadn't been modernized like since the 50s or something. Amazing. It was, yeah, it was incredible. Mm. But Cleo actually found that on Google Google Maps. Like on, she was just like tirelessly, because she knew, she knew the roads and stuff. So she yeah. was like going down roads on, on Google on the satellite image. <laughs> And then she would like find a little road and she's like, oh, I've never been down that road. I wonder. So she would kind of, she was looking up these satellite images and then she found, she found this house with the big driveway and these trees and the kind of farmyard and just whatever way the, like the, the roof looked kind of old or something and everything about it. She was just like, so she got the location scout to go there the next day and um, he just rang us and he was like, guys, <laughs> really? this house mm. is amazing. Mm. Yeah. Like it really, and then we went to see it and we were like, oh my God. Like we just felt like we had stepped into the story. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and we almost didn't get it. Like it was a bit COVID and all that. Like it was a guy, a lovely man living there on his own mm. guy in his like 60s or whatever farmer. Yeah. But then he was kind of worried about COVID mm. and, you know, he's sort of a shy enough guy. It's the notion of us taking over his house and all was a bit yeah. much. Yeah. But um, we eventually got it over the line. Great. Yeah. But sorry, I went way off there. So, um, uh, the edit. edit yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I think we had like 16 weeks originally, so that was like minus five. So then that left us with like 11. But I'm pretty sure we did more than that. We mm. definitely did more than that. Mm. You could easily add another like four or five weeks, I'd say, onto that. Um, was there a lot of testing, like shape, you know, changing the shape of things in the edit or... You know, the first cut often is a bit of a shock and you're like, oh, God, what did we do? And you have to go back and rejig everything. And Like, how was the process? Yeah. Um, The first cut was like, it's just over two hours, I think. It's like the finished film is 90 minutes. Mm. Um, and. Yeah, like it wasn't. It wasn't like, <laughs> like Scorsese says, like your first cut should make you physically ill. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of preparing myself for that, but then it was, it was, I was like, oh, I'm not, so you kind of see, okay, it's not like kind of working yet, but you could sort of see there's, you weren't terrified, you weren't yeah. forlorn <laughs> that you'd made a bad film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There wasn't like a panic at any point or anything, but, um, and it didn't, it didn't change massively in terms of the structure. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty much like like what it was was it was it was a process of removing elements largely from the first act actually um because it's just that thing that once you you know it, you read it in the script and it, it all kind of you know you're setting up Coet's home life and there's different sort of almost like these vignettes of like there was a whole first communion scene with her and um you know, the family kind of trying to take money off of her, like the neighbors giving money and all this kind of stuff. And, but it was just, and even though those scenes worked and they're kind of, they were like, 
kind of cool scenes and we were sort of sorry to lose them but you just have to start you just start asking the more important questions which are like is this actually adding yeah. anything to the to the story that we don't know already mm. so it was the thing of it's kind of a lesson i suppose in terms of something that's written in the script where you, there's a certain potency almost to like the the filmed thing mm. that lens or that adds all these that ripples out or something that like like you don't need three scenes that are kind of intimating this notion of poverty or whatever it's mm. like you just need one mm. that that strikes a chord and that registers um so it was things like that yeah it was largely like act one used to be about 20 minutes long and then it, it's now about 10 i suppose um and then, yeah, there's a few other scenes then, like, that we would cut out. But it was never a case of, like, oh, we need to, like, completely reinvent the shape of this. Or, yeah. you know, it was always act one is her home life. Mm. Act two is uh, uh, introduction to the Kinsleys and that sort of thawing relationship with Sean. And then act three is sort of post-revelation in terms mm. of the Kinsleys and all that. Um, Yeah, so... But yeah, in terms of the pace and all, like we did, it probably was like, it was definitely was like even slower and stuff. And then we yeah. would, you know, we get notes back, obviously saying, okay, we need to like. Mm. Slow is good, but no. So it's a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's that thing you kind of start falling in love with uh, the sort of the film that you have and, and you kind of need, mm. you need a bit of time to realize. Mm that there's another, you know, that you need to get to a certain place with it, you know. Um, but that's it. I mean, it's all, it's a process. It's like no more than writing. It's like you write your first draft of script and, yeah, you know, it needs several other drafts. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's the same kind of process, you know. Um, was there any big lesson that you took from the, the whole process that you would maybe bring into your next film? I mean, it's kind of the boring um, well-trodden adage about like just prep. It's all about prep, you know? Mm. Um, I'm not saying we didn't prep. Like we, we did we did like amazing prep. But almost like I, I loved the process of, of kind of figuring out the film in prep. Um to the point that I actually wanted to do more of it, you know? So I'd love to, I'd almost like love to start earlier if, uh, and I'm kind of talking about like almost like pre-prep before like all the machine gets up and running. Cause, cause you realize then that actually you're just getting dragged in so many different directions as a director that you, you kind of lose the space mm. to just sit and think about the film and discuss it with like, kind of key collaborate collaborators and so that's something i'd almost love to i realize now that there's real value to that like I, myself and kate mccullough um spent a huge amount of time talking about the film kind of pre-prep you know um and that was invaluable like that's where we really kind of found the film in terms of the aesthetic of it and the tone and all that yeah it has a very distinctive and clear visual language throughout the whole thing it's like it has a stamp a visual stamp yeah and that's all the the result of that 
conversation. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's not like we didn't storyboard or anything. It was just, it was just a, a question of figuring out like what kind of film it was and what kind of film it wasn't. And, and strangely not like we didn't really, we didn't really like use other films like as, mm. like the only thing I remember talking about with Kate in terms of other films would have been like the early, early work of Lynn Ramsey. Mm. Like I love, um, I love her short films. I think they're incredible. Mm. I think Gas Man is like, to me, it's like one of the best films ever made. Like it's an incredible film. And I just love the language of that, like the visual language of that. Um, but yeah, outside of that, then it was more like we would just share, like we'd set up like a Pinterest and we would just share stills. Like it was more about like photography and mm. stuff. And, Love it, yeah. uh, and just trying to figure out the sort of feel of it, you know. Mm. Well, um, <laughs> we, I would, could chat about this forever, but uh, um, thank you so much for coming in. You've made a, a beautiful film that's going to, live on for many years to come yeah, I think yeah it's, I think so too yeah, you have two big fans here anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful film it really is thank you my name is Keen and I'm James and we host Sissy That Pod Sissy That Pod is a fun informative and comprehensive companion podcast into the world of the queer and colourful cultural behemoth that is RuPaul's Drag Race. Join us every week as we cover the current season of the show, All Star 7, through the eyes of two queer Irish fans. Or scour through our back catalogue wherever you get your podcasts or on headstuffpodcast.com to check out the other seasons we've covered. But for now, start your engine. It's time to crown an ultimate queen. Queen.